Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic Radio. I'm your host today, Broderick Matthews. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And today we started off with a piece from Symphony of Science with Children of Africa, the story of us. And uh, we might be filling in a bit more of that story today, well before the Children of Africa, um, but we'll get to that in a moment. For starters, I should introduce my other presenter with me this morning. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Broderick. Welcome back to Fuzzy. It's been a little while since you've been on the radio, but uh, happy to be back. Really happy. It's been almost three years, but I'm back in Canberra, and I was really looking forward to coming back on Fuzzy, and I've succeeded, so I'm very happy. Good to hear. Good, good. Well, we've got a fantastic show lined up for you today. We've actually got some scientists in the studio with us already, and uh, we're going to start off with them. We're going to be talking about old bones and new insights, and... Local old bones. Now, I'm not, no, I'm not saying our guests are local old bones. We're talking about some local old bones that they've found. Um, so I should introduce them to you. Um, they're both researchers from the ANU. From the School of Physics, we've got Tim Senden. Morning, Tim. And, uh, oh, hold on, I should turn your microphone on, Tim, if we're going to listen to you. Let's try that again. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, everyone. There we go. And uh, from the School of Earth Sciences, is Gavin Young. Good morning, Gavin. Hey, good morning. <clears throat> Now, um, the two of you have put together a fantastic exhibition that's on display in the Canberra Museum and Gallery at the moment, which is called Old Bones uh, New Insights, and it's a whole heap of fossils that are actually quite local, um, which surprised me, first of all, that there were these amazing fossils so close to Canberra out at uh, Burrinjuk near Wee Jasper. Now, uh, these fossils, they, they were first discovered quite a while ago, weren't they? Uh, that's correct, yeah. It goes right back to last century, actually. Um, but um, the reason why we've got that display is actually because we were out at Wee Jasper one year ago explaining to people that visited the um, the caves and the limestones in the Wee Jasper Valley that uh, these fossils were so important internationally that the British Museum had come out here in the 1950s and 60s, and they'd gone off with um, some 600 specimens, and they're now sitting in London. So um, uh, there are many people from Canberra who said, well, if it's so important, how come we don't know about it? How can we see these things? And the issue, of course, is that in Canberra, there's no... We don't have a national museum that displays such items, um, unlike all the state capitals. And, in fact, I think all the capital cities in the developed world that I'm aware of. <laughs> so uh, uh, we had these locked away in our research uh, collection. So Tim and myself uh, decided that we should try and put on a display. We're, we're researchers, not display people, and it was a, we're sort of amateurs in that. But we knuckled down and uh, uh, had an arrangement with the Canberra Museum, and uh, that's why they're on display. Yeah, well, they're absolutely fascinating fossils that we've got in there. Coming from the Devonian period, which is about, if I, I copied this down correctly from the display, about 416 to 360 million years ago. Um, now, what was going on in that Devonian period where these fossils are from? Uh, it was a major period of transformation. Uh, what I say to students is that if we could transport ourselves back in time, if you... Um, went back in a time machine and you landed, say, in the Silurian period, which is before the Devonian, it would be quite an alien landscape. But after the, after the middle part of the Devonian period, when you first get these diverse vegetation developing on the landscape, first forests and all sorts of things, and we have a couple of plant fossils in our display as well from the south coast that could rep represent... Um, 
trees, unknown trees, undescribed, undocumented, uh, trees from some of the oldest forests. Uh, at that period, um, at that time, the uh, the landscape would have been transformed. So if you went back, say, in the, in the late Devonian, uh, transported yourself back to the late Devonian, you would be surrounded by trees, uh, low vegetation, the rivers would be teeming with uh, fish, um, and all of those things wouldn't have applied at uh, an earlier period in geological time. So it was a major transformation. And what would those plants have looked like? Would they have been similar to walking through a rainforest today inland from Eden, or would they have been quite different looking and different, differently functioning, I guess? Oh, well, they're certainly the first trees, so, they, so I'm no paleobotanist. And in <laughs> fact, one of the points that we make in the display is that uh, from uh, down at the south coast in the Mimosa Rocks National Park, where those few specimens that we've displayed come from, um, nobody's done any detailed research. But they certainly were big trees, um, and uh, they were, many of them were lycopods or lycopsids, um, uh, lycopodium is a, is a little fern that grows today. That's sort of a living representative of that group. And, and they were a major, major group on the Gondwana uh, supercontinent. So I think that uh, one of the messages I always try and get across is that we're relatively... this The whole uh, vista of, of ancient life, whether it be plant or animal, is relatively unknown in Australia. Um, all of the scientific literature is focused on the Northern Hemisphere, but in fact, at the time that I'm talking about, when the first animals moved onto the land, when the uh, first forests evolved, the largest continent was Gondwana. And um, Australia, South America, Africa and Antarctica, they're all very poorly known compared to uh, Europe and North America. So really, I I consider that only a small part of the full story has been uh, documented. All right, well, let's continue this story now. And we've talked about the plants. And what are, what are some of the animals that we were seeing around that time, the, the fish in the sea? Uh, well, on display, we've actually got um, many of the um, armoured fish, uh, or they were called placoderms, and um, placos from the Greek for plate and dermis, skin. So they had a, an external armour. So that's an entirely extinct group. Uh, yeah, so we, we don't see fish like this nowadays. Uh, that group's gone. Yeah. Um, so today the modern teleost fishes, which uh, dominate an, um, every aquatic environment today and which are the most diverse living vertebrates, um, in the Devonian it was the placoderms filling that role. So they were everywhere, all over the world. Um, but out at Burrenjuk it's pretty interesting because out there we've got an ancient coral reef environment from about... 400 million years ago, beautiful reefs are exposed and uh, it's actually the most diverse uh, fossil fish assemblage in the world from the Devonian period, which comes from the Burrenjuk area. So if we were tourists back then, rather than going to the Great Barrier Reef, we might have gone to this area that you're talking about today. There were armoured fish. Were there other types of fish as well, or did they all belong to this armoured group? No, the armoured fish were the dominant group, so they were most species from any place in the world which produces Devonian fish were placoderms, but also out there um, another major group were the lungfish. And in fact, the first lungfish skull and the oldest lungfish skull from the fossil record was found out near Old Tamas Bridge 
in about 1900, and it was first documented in 1906. And uh, that's pretty interesting because today, of course, uh, anybody that's aware of the Queensland lungfish is one of the most archaic of living fish, and it actually means that Australia has a unique record of evolution of this particular group uh, from the Devonian period to, to modern times. Is there something special about a lungfish? Does, does it, I mean, I'm, I'm not a biologist at all, so does it have lungs? Uh, yes, well, obviously they're called lungfish because they have lungs. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, what, what is interesting is that when the, um, when the Queensland lungfish was first described, because it has fleshy lobes in the fins, um, it was first described as an amphibian. So they actually sit, uh, they actually belong to the major group of fleshy, fleshy finned fish um, from which our ancestors evolved. Uh, that is the first land animals that walked out onto the land surface uh, sometime during the Devonian period. Uh, right, so the lungfish we see today, have they changed much from the, the, the fossils we can see at Wee Jasper or, or has the evolution gone just completely so far beyond that now? Oh, I think they're, they're still... Um, they're readily recognised because they've got. They all have, almost all of them have crushing tooth plates. They feed on uh, crushing up uh, shellfish and things like that. Um, the the modern ones uh, live in freshwater, and I suppose one of the major differences is that in the Devonian period, they were largely marine, so they lived in the sea and they were much more diverse. But they were still swimming around in the sea, crushing up shellfish, and one of the uh, we actually talk about the special, uh, in, in our exhibition, we've got a little panel about electroreception, um, where um, an animal can detect a prey item hidden in the sand, and probably many listeners would know about how a shark can do that today by picking up the electrical impulses mm-hmm. uh, of the nervous system of, say, a shellfish hidden under the, under the say, hidden in the mud. Um, it seems, and this is um, some of Tim's work with the CT scanner, uh, we can demonstrate pretty convincingly that these early lungfish could do that. And uh, so they were filling the role that today is occupied by sharks and rays in the sea. And in freshwater, um, today, the platypus does the same thing. Yeah. Well, that, you mentioned Tim's CT scanner there, looking at um, uh, the, these fish and, and what role... Uh, their various body parts might have played. We might bring you in here, Tim, to talk a little bit about that because you're from the other side of things in the School of Physics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a merging of sciences here. It is very much. Yeah, so what, what are, you, um, are you lending to the, these fossils to help us discover more about them? Well, the nice thing about having a, a physical collection, which is what the ANU paleontological collection is, is that we can apply new techniques as they become uh, available to science. And one of the techniques we're developed in physics is X-ray microscopy. It's a it's a particular type of CT scanning or CAT scanning. Some listeners may know of it as, and our particular version of it is a particularly high res- resolution and high fidelity. And it's a very natural thing to apply it to fossils because there's a lot of hidden histology and and function within these uh, these bones. Too precious, obviously, to cut and grind up. Mm. Um, so it gives us a non-destructive way of uh, uh, uncovering some of the the mysteries. And in three D, I might add. 
So you can use this technology to look inside the bones without breaking them. What sort of things do you see on the inside of the bones and what would that tell you about these animals or plants when they were alive hundreds of millions of years ago? Well, Gavin's example is, is probably the, the best one to draw upon. Uh, in the snout of some of these lungfish, there are two types of um, sensory systems. And although that's been known to paleontologists for some time, they've seen them only by the, the random chance of a fracture through these uh, fossils or an exposed bone through weathering or so, so on. So although the function's been known, the actual details of how the nerves connect haven't. And so that's been an opportunity when you study these things in 3D is actually connect the full story uh, as, as it would have been in life. So that's fantastic, helping to, to tell the story there. And I suppose... My next question to, to either of you is, is why, why are we trying to tell this story? What are these fossils going to help us with? Uh, well, my first comment would be I think they help us with uh, one of the uh, most spectacular discoveries of science over the last several hundred years, and that is uh, to comprehend the enormous age of the Earth and the enormous um, uh, length of time uh, for life to have evolved on the earth and the great complexity of life and the fact that the fossil record uh, produces um, overwhelming evidence in support of the um, of Charles Darwin's evolutionary theories. And I think it's quite appropriate because the 12th of February, which was Darwin's birthday, is sort of celebrated around the world amongst scientists as Darwin Day when we look back on, on uh, the evidence that's come come to light, as it were, since, um, since he wrote his book in 1859. And in that sense, I think, I certainly said this to when we had a public lecture last week, um, every fossil on display uh, that we have on display is, in a, in a sense, a transitional fossil. So these were the things that Charles Darwin predicted would be found. He had to explain why uh, these uh, the, the animals that sat intermediate between other known species or other known types of animals or plants, but of course we're mainly focused on vertebrates in our display, um, why they weren't found and the explanation that Darwin put forward was, well, this happened a long time ago and they would have been, they would have existed in the past but the fossil record is so incomplete that we can't find these things. So, of course... Okay, we're now 150 years later and um, uh, we need to be able to say, well, we have found numerous examples that uh, just as Charles Darwin predicted. So on that note of finding these samples and how challenging that can be, what is, what is it about the rocks at Weir Jasper that have allowed those fossils to be preserved? What sort of rocks are they? What sort of conditions would have made them a perfect place for preserving lots of fish fossils? Because as you say, there's lots and lots of land without fossils on it, but this seems to be a real hot spot. Oh, that's a, a pretty good question because we, uh, it's a sort of a man-made result because the, the fossils occur in limestones and out there we're, we actually had a group, we took a group out there yesterday to Wee Jasper. The limestones are normally uh, rather dark in colour and the bones at Burrinjuk are also dark in colour. But fortunately, when they decided to build Burrinjuk Dam back in the, back in 19, I think it, filled up in the 1920s, uh, constructed, I think, in 1917 or 1919, I forget which date. Uh, it actually meant that uh, these great tracts of limestone were underwater for much of the time, and particularly over the last uh, 10 to 20 years when we've had lots of droughts, 
we've been able to go out there and here are these vast expanses of perfectly clean limestone um, and really the, uh, the exposure, you can see every fossil in them and I've been all over the world looking at comparable rocks and I've never seen a display of um, coral reef fossils including bones poking out of the rock um, such as you see out there and it's because they're washed clean by the um, waters of Lake Barajak. So that's one of the reasons why we find so many good things out there. That's right. And you've kind of kept using that technique of using the water to wash away um, to, to reveal more of the fossils? Is that... uh, well, yes, because it's, uh, many people don't realise... Any, if anybody's heard about, say, Riversley in the Northern Territory, where Mike Archer's fantastic... Um, World Heritage Site for fossil marsupials, they're extracted from limestone in exactly the same way by using acid, acetic or formic acid, to extract the bones. And that technique was actually developed in London uh, in the 1940s uh, using f five specimens that were sent from Australia, from Barangjuk. <laughs> And um, so the reason why we have caves in limestone and the reason why we can use acid to extract these bones is that um, uh, rainwater is a very weak acid and it tends to dissolve the calcium carbonate, which is the rock, and our bones are not made of calcium carbonate, they're made of calcium phosphate, and that's a bit more resistant to, um, to acid, and that's why the bones tend to poke out of the rock. So we've talked about what we can see out at the site itself. In regards to what visitors can see at the museum, if they go along to see this display, which, as you said, you've both worked together to help get up and running, do they see the fossils? Do the fossils look like a fish skeleton after you've eaten a piece of fish for dinner and left the bones behind? Or are they patterns in rock? Or what sort of things will people actually see at the museum? Um, well, Tim can answer that first with his video display. <laughs> Um, well, you see that the original bone, in fact, um, because of the technique Gavin just mentioned, the acid preparation, um, in the two cases uh, that we focus on largely, the ones out at Kimberley's, uh, at the Gogo site and at Burrenjuk, of course, we get the original bone out. And so, yes, you do see fragments of bone. Some of the placoderm bones um, are unlike fish bones you see today, of course, but uh, there are pictures that help uh, the viewers see what they need to. The go-go material, however, are complete articulated fish and there's no mistaking there they are fish. Um, it's, it's quite a remarkable thing up at go-go. Um, and then, of course, with the X-ray scanning, we've had an opportunity to scan them uh, in 3D and uh, can show all the, uh, the features that we need, all the anatomical features, uh, such as brain cases and eyeballs and all sorts of so, wonderful... Yes, uh, there, so we've got uh, four big... or two large and two smaller screens showing animations from the CT scanning data. Um, we've, got, we've got 3D printouts of models showing the brain case, and that's one of the, one of the unique features of the Burrenjuk material. It actually preserves the vertebrate brain case from 400 million years ago in more uh, different types of fossils than in any other locality in the world. Uh, the third thing that we haven't mentioned is the stuff from the south coast because there we've actually got some rocks on dis display, big lumps of red mudstone that come from south of Eden in the Ben Boyd National Park. And uh, in that instance, the bone was rather badly um, weathered, so the technique there is to remove the bone and make, um, make casts 
of the uh, impressions in the rock and from that we've reconstructed um, what, uh, what is the largest known freshwater predator from the late Devonian period and that's the thing that we're going to call Edenopteron after, after the um, south coast um, town of Eden and uh, there's a superb model that we've got on display done by um, a local modeler and artist, Baz Crook, um, which is, I think it's one of the, certainly the most accurate and one of the best models uh, that I've seen anywhere in the world of one of these fish, but it also happens to be one of the biggest um, (laughs) examples. And this thing had big fangs about 40 millimetres long, a fearsome predator uh, that lived in the... um, in the in the freshwater rivers that uh, deposited the rocks along the along the cliffs down at Eden, or right up to Marimbula, in fact, all of those red rocks along the coast there that people might be familiar with. They were large river systems, and they were teeming with fish. And this was the biggest. This was the top predator. And it actually has a lot of similarities in its skull to humans in in the Edenopteron. Is that right? Well, that was one of the things that we wanted to emphasise that. Um, in fact, we've got a, um, a beautiful um, uh, illustration that I don't know whether you noticed this when you went into the display by Goethe, um, who's uh, considered to be a poet. But, of course, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was also a famous scientist and uh, some, of his, um, um, uh, some of his handwriting is on display over in the National Library. Um, we've actually got an illustration of a, an ape skull that he published in 1831 uh, when he identified a particular bone, the premaxilla, which is the uh, tooth-bearing bone in the upper jaw of all jawed vertebrates uh, in a human um, skull, uh, a f- human fetus, in fact. And uh, we were, we've illustrated there how we can find these same bones in these ancient fish from 360 million years ago um, and uh, they're just a couple of examples of all the bones of the skull and shoulder girdle uh, for which there are equivalents in the, in the modern mammal skeleton. See the developments there, pretty impressive. Now, the one thing I did want to clarify with you, Tim, um, about those pictures we were talking about before, those 3D images, when I was going through the exhibition, to me it felt like um, a bit like on CSI or those sorts of shows where yes. they, they 3D image the evidence and that sort of thing. Now, on those shows, it happens instantly, relatively speaking. H- how long does it actually take for you to prepare those 3D images? Oh, it's, it's a good question. Um, generally, uh, several hours to a day uh, to, to collect the data, and the data is a, a massive data set. I mean, I, I think it's worth emphasising that even our smallest data set is 16 gigabytes, and we'll do well over 100 GB uh, for some data sets. Yeah, so that's that's like one iPod almost just for an entire skull. That's, that's right. huge. And so the, the quality of the data is everything. So in a way we don't mind how long we scan as long as it's good quality because in the end you're going to spend weeks analysing the data. So the animations themselves take uh, several days to, to construct and to display depending on what uh, anatomy you're trying to uh, illustrate. So it, it's what the wonderful thing about using x-rays is you get a, a map in three dimensions of all the density variations. So where there's air, you'll see an air pocket. Where there's bone or a change in tissue type, you'll see that too. And using the 3D visualisation, uh, you can pick out one type of tis- tissue over another. Um, alternatively, we can use another type of visualisation, which is 3D printing. And that's a technique we're uh, illustrating, uh, I think, in, in many cases in, in this application for the first time in the world. 
so we can actually scan the skull and then print out another copy. That's right. Um, and look, this is this is a brilliant uh, thing for us because many of these specimens are too fragile to uh, to handle, really. And many times you want to re-articulate bones, join them back together and see how they would have um, connected in life. And if you've already scanned the data, then obviously printing a replica means that you can enlarge it, you can uh, do whatever you like and handle it with, uh, uh, without uh, the same care you might with the original. Fantastic. Now, this exhibition is open until the 26th of February down at the Canberra Museum and Gallery. So uh, take the opportunity to go and visit it while you can because uh, that does mean it closes next week, unfortunately. But what's going to happen once the exhibition closes? Where, does, where do all these fossils go? Uh, well, we wanted to raise the profile of the ANU collection, and, um, but uh, we have to pack everything up at the end of the, well, after next week. Um, I'll remind people this is your last chance and uh, uh, it's free and um, as Tim was saying a lot of these a lot of these things that we had on display we ha- haven't actually we were just printing these things out for the first time for this exhibition we haven't actually had a chance to get our hands on them ourselves so it's very much research in progress that we're displaying there and um, when it goes back um, it will uh, we will things back in a, a strong room for the type specimens um, which we've displayed for the first time and uh, I certainly hope that the ANU recognises the value of this uh, collection and um, considers how there might be some sort of permanent display because I think it's a, a sort of a showcase of what goes on and museums all over the world showcase some of their nice stuff to justify the fact that maintaining these collections for in perpetuity um, in, involves resources and money, and that's what the museums do. And unfortunately, in Canberra, we're pretty concerned that really uh, there's no the National Museum um, doesn't actually deal with collections of this type. Um, but we are hoping that there perhaps there'll be a collaboration developed there as well. Uh, so we just hope that uh, we have the opportunity, having put this display together, to um, at least show some of it again. And I might emphasise that uh, I think it's about 50% of what we first wrote up was on display. And I've got a whole box at home of um, of panels and illustrations of stuff that just was... Uh, we just didn't have the space to put that on display. So really there's an opportunity to do much more than we did um, in, a, I think, a permanent display. So that's what, I'd be, that's what I would hope would happen uh, in the national capital, which I think is appropriate because um, we should have such a museum or permanent display, if not at the ANU, in some uh, dedicated science and natural history museum. And are there other collections at the ANU of different types of fossils or different types of artefacts that you think would be worth displaying as well? Oh, look, there are all sorts of things hidden away. We've actually got um, on display to illustrate the similarity between a Devonian fish skull, the giant Edenopteron from the south coast, and um, modern humans. We've got a human skull and we've got an orangutan skull that uh, Colin Groves from the anthropology um, department gave us from his collection so there are all sorts of things hidden away and uh, we really think that um, there'd be a wonderful opportunity to um, uh, showcase uh, research that's based on collections uh, 
uh, first and foremost specimen based and in addition showcase the how the latest technology that Tim's involved with can exploit these unique specimens to further uh, the research. Definitely, I, I definitely agree with that and that your exhibition really does highlight the, the amazing nature of these fossils but also how we're looking at them today using our new technologies. So I definitely encourage every fuzzy listener to get along if they haven't already down to the Canberra Museum and Art Gallery and check out this uh, brilliant collection of fossils that are really quite close to home, just 50 kilometres away out at Wee Jasper there and uh, learn a bit, bit about the... Uh, the deep, dark past of Australia and uh, what, what creatures were once on the lands around us. And so thanks very much for coming in this morning, guys. Thanks, yeah. Tim. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, thanks, Gavin. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, that's no, been an absolute pleasure. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. The time's seven minutes past 12. It's 25.4 degrees outside. And uh, if you missed it, if you've just tuned in, you did miss a fantastic interview with uh, Gavin Young and Tim Sendon, both researchers from the ANU, talking about their exhibition, Old Bones, New Insights. Some amazing fossils from Burrenjunk near Wee Jasper, ancient Devonian fish and some really impressive stuff. It's it's uh, some things that haven't been seen before in the world. Uh, so head along to the Canberra Museum and Gallery if you do get the chance. It closes next weekend, so make the most of it that you can. Uh, but speaking of fossils uh, from the Devonian, we're going to change time frames a little bit, aren't we, Alison, and, and have a look at some other fossils. To head forward a fair way into the future. As was said, the fossils we were talking about before were from hundreds of years ago, sort of 300 million years ago and even earlier. But there's some news in science at the moment about an amazing new fossil that was discovered that was alive about 12 to 13 million years ago. So much more recently, but it does bear a passing resemblance to the fish that we were talking about before. This particular fossilised creature, as with our fish, had some pretty special teeth. And in this case, if you can imagine this, Broderick, and our listeners at home, this animal's teeth were actually so big that they were as long as your outstretched forearm. So if you can imagine a tooth uh, from the tips of your outstretched fingers right down to your elbow and a tooth that was so wide that it's actually wider and thicker than your forearm. I think a nice big manly forearm like Brods quite possibly. So, so that's, that's the tooth. The one just tooth one was tooth. as long as your forearm. That's absolutely huge. What would you eat if you had teeth that big? If I had everything. Everything, <laughs> pretty much. Well, this animal probably could have eaten everything if it liked. But it turns out that scientists have actually discovered the fossilised remains of a now extinct whale with teeth as big as your forearm. And it used these teeth to prey upon other whales. So this giant fossilised whale had a three-metre-long skull and the scientists estimate that it would have been between 13 and a half and 17 and a half metres long. And the scientists think it used its huge teeth to hunt baleen whales. So those are whales with baleen, like blue whales, um, that were up to 10 metres long. So it was eating animals that were more than half its size. The newly discovered whale has been given the name Leviathan Melvii after Herman Melville, who wrote the famous story Moby Dick about a great big sperm whale that was hunted, uh, and the word Leviathan, which means sea monster. So as I said before, Leviathan lived about 12 to 13 million years ago, and it was related to modern sperm whales. Modern sperm whales also have teeth, but they're much smaller than Leviathans. Today, sperm whales mostly eat soft-bodied animals like squid by sucking them into their mouth very quickly rather than chewing them. 
Now, although it was related to sperm whales, Leviathan's body shape and style of living was actually a lot more like that of a killer whale than a sperm whale, except that Leviathan ate animals that were much bigger than the animals killer whales eat. As a matter of fact, Leviathan ate animals that were bigger than killer whales themselves. This amazing animal probably became extinct millions of years ago as oceans around the world cooled down and its prey became less abundant. Wow. Just oh, imagine running into one of those creatures. Like, I mean, whales, they're pretty huge. They're pretty impressive. But this leviathan, exactly, just be so scary. And by the sounds of things, it had a bad attitude as well. So it wasn't like seeing a <laughs> whale shark or a beautiful big cruisy blue whale. I would not have wanted to get on the wrong side of this animal. Pretty amazing stuff. Definitely, definitely. A bad attitude with a big body don't go well together. All right. Well, what else have we got uh, in terms of old school stories? In terms of old school stories, well, in keeping with the idea of looking at things uh, that have become extinct in the past, but putting a bit of a modern Jurassic Park style twist, we've got some really amazing news out of Japan. If I can get you to imagine this scene, scientists stand up in front of a press conference and they announce to the world that they've cloned a living, breathing mammoth from frozen mammoth cells. And then before your very eyes, they lead a shaggy baby mammoth on a lead with a great big pink bow around its neck on stage for the entire world to see. Why, why isn't this on YouTube? Has well, it well, well, it hasn't happened yet. Okay. It, it might sound like a sequel to Jurassic Park, but proving that truth can be stranger than fiction, this scene might actually, it isn't a reality yet, but it might be on YouTube and it might be happening in real life in about five years' time. You see, scientists from Kyoto University in Japan have recently announced that they intend to start work on cloning a mammoth. If all goes to plan, a living, breathing mammoth baby could be born in around five years' time, and that would make it the first mammoth to be seen alive on Earth in over 4,500 years. Previous efforts to clone mammoths have failed because when cells freeze, they usually burst, and that can damage the DNA inside them. However, in 2008, scientists found a way to clone mice from cells which had been frozen for 16 years. And the scientists at Kyoto University think they can use this same technique to pick out undamaged mammoth DNA for cloning. The scientists plan to get this DNA, then put the nucleus of a long frozen mammoth cell with the DNA inside it, inside an elephant's ovum or egg, which has had its own <laughs> nucleus removed. The egg will then be implanted into an elephant's womb, and if all goes to plan, the elephant mum will give birth to a baby mammoth after a 600-day pregnancy. Hopefully wow. she won't be too horrified by the results when she sees what her 600 days of effort have given her. <laughs> well, that's about the uh, normal time frame, I think, for an elephant. Yes, birth. it is. Very, long. very, very long yeah, indeed. Yeah. We complain about nine months, um, yeah. but nothing on elephants, I'm afraid. I suppose you just have to watch out for those tusks on the way out. True, true. I'm hoping they're facing in the right direction. Maybe they grow as the baby mammoth grows yeah. up. So it hasn't happened yet, as you say, but uh, we'll stay tuned. We'll make a note in Fuzzy's diary for five yeah. years' time and we'll see what happens. Well, I've also heard stuff about the um, Tasmanian tiger being cloned too. They've got DNA from that in those little... Um, little em em embryos, embryos yeah, or fetuses, which is kind of an unpalatable thought, I guess. There's been mm. lots and lots of work uh, to bring... Tasmanian tigers back to life and lots yeah. of cloning work. It hasn't been successful at the moment. Uh, as you mentioned, Broderick, I've been away from Fuzzy because I've been living in Tasmania for the last couple of years and the idea of having a Tasmanian tiger alive again is fantastic. But I guess the more pressing issue for a lot of people in, Tasmanians, in Tasmania is actually looking after Tasmanian devils because unfortunately they're also on their way out looking like they might follow in the way of a tiger because of a really nasty devil facial tumour disease. So as much as it would be nice to have tigers again, I think focusing on devils for the time being would be really, really good. Mm. Well, it's funny you actually bring up the Tassie devil uh, tumour because there was a, a discovery this week 
that the Tasmanian devil genome's been mapped for the first time, um, which is hopefully a start on the way to um, identifying what's causing this uh, tumour, um, and uh, hopefully we can stop it. Um, it was found by uh, researchers at the Australian National University, mm. right here in Canberra. Um, so, and uh, the really interesting thing that they found uh, looking at the tumour is that since it was first discovered in 1996, yep. it's actually changed very little over the 16 years. That's correct. Um, and that's really unusual for cancers, according to the, the researchers, because usually for human cancers, evolution is rapid, and the uh, tumour will be completely different between the original and its metastases. Well, um, so they've, in the, the work that they've done, they've confirmed that the genetic, uh, sorry, that the Tasmanian devil tumour is uh, quite genetically stable. It, to be honest, it's actually a really unusual cancer in a number of respects, mostly because it can actually be transmitted from devil to devil to devil. So usually if a person is unlucky enough to get cancer, that's very sad. But by you know holding hands or hanging out with or kissing another person, they're not going to give that person cancer. But for this devil facial tumour disease, they've actually found that it's a cancer that can be spread. There's lots and lots of research that's been done into finding out the exact mechanism by which it's spread. And they think it actually might be have might have something to do with the devil's mating and breeding because generally the baby devils are okay but once they reach sexual maturity at about two or three years of age that's when this devil facial tumour disease hits which is really nasty because the mother has just enough time to have her first set of babies and she starts getting really sick. Yeah. It's, a it's a really tragic issue but there's lots of work being done and luckily uh, if you can imagine a map of Tasmania the disease for some reason seems to have spread from east to west so over in Fraser National Park on the east coast uh, Devil numbers have declined by 95%, which is pretty wow. scary. So 20 devils uh, 15, 20 years ago, there's one now. But in the west, in the far west over near Queenstown and the big mountainous areas, they actually haven't found any evidence of devil facial tumour disease yet. And we hope that the populations of devils in the east and the west seem to be a little bit separate. Mm. Those big mountains keep them a little bit separate. And hopefully those western devils can stay healthy. And scientists are looking at them to try to find out if they've got some sort of a special feature of their immune system or some feature of their genes that helps them stay resistant. Yeah, well, this latest discovery of genome mapping um, hopes that they'll actually be able to cure the devils. But they're also hoping that because of the uh, unique and different nature of the cancer that it might uh, lend us some insight into human cancers too and uh, help humans survive cancer better. Well, that would be a win-win situation I if we could get it sorted out. Good. I've got my fingers crossed there. <laughs> well, we've been talking about some Tasmanian natives, but I've got a question for you, Alice. How can you tell a Canberra native? Uh, ask them if they like roundabouts or not, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking, you know, the the black suit, boring tie. Oh, you and I don't work that way, Brob. No. To be fair, we're not natives. We'd probably be kicked out That's if we right. said that too loudly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting the way you, you look around and you tell whether someone's a local or not. I mean, some places it's more obvious. Like I, well, you and I both travel a bit for work and uh, I remember rocking up in... Uh, now, where was it? Condoblin, in the middle of New South Wales, and uh, rocked up with a, a, another guy and a couple of females that I was working with, and the girls walked up the bar and asked for a cider, and the, the publican just looks at him and goes, we don't serve cider in this pub, love. <laughs> and, uh, 
I think that was pretty clear we weren't locals there. No, I've done the same thing when I first moved to Canberra, not this time around, but a couple of years ago after living in Darwin and Townsville for most of my life. I wandered down to the shops to buy some groceries and people were staring at me and a couple of them asked, oh, are you new around here? And it took me ages to figure out that it was because I'd wandered down to the shops without shoes on and apparently that's not socially acceptable (laughs) in Canberra. So yes, by looking at the behaviours and features of of our fellows, we can have a good guess if they're native or not. That's right. You have to wear at least Ugg boots in Canberra. Yes, definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to, to, to work out whether someone's a local. And uh, some new research from the University of Sydney um, is actually looking at this in animals um, and a new way of determining whether an introduced species has become a native species is by looking at the other animals around them. Um, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Um, looking at the other the way the other animals interact with interact that animal. With okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, so um, so what they're doing is uh, they're basically looking at if local fauna recognise and respond effectively to this new species. Um, it, it means it's become well integrated into that community, and therefore it's uh, more likely to be classified as a native animal. Um, now the the example they're using in this case is the dingo. Mm. There's a bit um, of controversy there over whether we can call it native or not, considering that it's been here for a long time, but it was brought here by people. That's right. Dingoes were introduced to Australia around 4,000 years ago, um, but, you know, we're still debating now. And um, the status of dingoes actually has implications for wild dog management mm. and conservation and that sort of thing. Um, so what these researchers did is they had a look at how a vulnerable native species, which is the bandicoot, um, reacted to domestic dogs uh, and... Uh, which are the same species as the dingo. So domestic dogs are Canis lupus familiaris, and uh, the dingo is Canis lupus dingo. Um, so pretty similar there. Um, so they used domestic dogs as a proxy for the dingo in this study. And uh, they looked at how bandicoots forage in urban backyards, in households that have dogs, compared to those that have cats, which are more recently introduced, so not a, not been around as long. And they found that bandicoots recognised the danger and avoided foraging in backyards with dogs, but continued to visit yards with, uh, of cat owners and petless households. So that means that uh, bandicoots have come to fear dogs as predators after thousands of years of interaction with dingoes, and so avoid areas with dogs, while they're yet to recognise that threat that cats pose as predators because they haven't been in contact with cats as long. So therefore, that kind of does seem to indicate that possibly uh, dingoes are natives uh, as the bandicoots are responding to this danger. So really interesting uh, study there. And it, I mean, it does lend support for the fact that maybe dingoes should be considered a native species. Um, and uh, it also shows that the lack of response to cats by bandicoots suggests that, you know, even though it's been hundreds of years of coexistence, because cats have been around in Australia for a little while. They came over on the first fleet, I think, a couple of them. That's at right. Least, I'm quite sure possibly. one of them wrote a book about his travels with. Um, uh, I thought you were going to say a cat wrote a book then yes, for a minute, uh, but that makes that, more sense. That, that's what I was implying, actually. <laughs> but um, no, someone wrote a book from the point of view mm. of. I think it's Matthew Flinders' cat. Yes, yes. I think. Uh, the power of one author, possibly. Bryce Courtney, maybe. Quite possibly. Yeah, anyway, that's literature. <laughs> we're about science here. Um, yeah, so th- that means that we can simply regard cats as an introduced species and not yet native. 
So there you go. And as you say, whether they're native or not native definitely has implications for the way we manage those animals and whether we want to try to look at reducing feral dog numbers or reducing dingo numbers or whether we should be looking after them. I mm. think having a dingo who is a purebred dingo and not a crossbred with a native dog is actually quite rare these days. So there's lots of discussion going on over whether we should say that's a good thing, they don't belong here, they eat our native animals, off they go, or whether we should try to take care of them as something that's special and unique and has a lot of history here. Yeah, well, I mean, personally, I'm quite a fan of them. I mean, they can do some damage uh, sometimes in different places, but, you know, you never know. It's, it'll be an interesting study to see what comes of this in the near future. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic, 2XX 98.3 FM Community Radio. Broderick here with Alice sitting across the desk from me, and... Um, I found a bit of bad news for myself this week, Alice, while I was doing the, the fuzzy logic research, as I do. Um, a new study coming out of the University of Melbourne and uh, the New York University Stern School of Business found that having a simple, easy-to-pronounce name... Like it, Alice? Yeah, and not like Broderick, is uh, more likely to win you friends and favour in the workplace. <gasps> I know, I know. I'm, I'm devastated. Um... It's, it's called the name pronunciation effect, um, which occurs when people with easy-to-pronounce names are evaluated more positively than those with difficult-to-pronounce names. Uh, the study revealed that people with more pronounceable names were more likely to be favoured for political office and job promotions. Political candidates with easy-to-pronounce names were more likely to win a race than those without, based on a mock ballot. And attorneys with more pronounceable names rose more quickly to superior positions in their firm hierarchies based on a field study of 500 first and last names of US lawyers. So that's really interesting because now I'm actually thinking whether Broderick, I mean, to me, you pronounce it how you say it, but is it long and complicated? Well, I guess, I guess that's the question. If somebody read my name on paper and your name on paper, my name's certainly shorter, but it, you don't pronounce it how you read it. If you didn't have a particularly um, familiar, familiarity with the English language, you'd look at my name and go, oh, Aliki, that sounds <laughs> awful and is also hard to pronounce, whereas your, yours is lovely and phonetic. Maybe yeah. you should start going by broad and see if you Bro get a pay rise. True, true. Well, I actually, I have found um, that I'm slowly tending towards broad in the, the work world, and I think I'm working my way up. I don't know. <laughs> um, next time I go for that promotion, maybe I'll just write down broad on the uh, the 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 form. I mean, it's interesting to appreciate the subtle biases that do shape our choices and judgment uh, about everyone else. You know, and it's not just. I, I should clarify here that it's not just. Um, how foreign sounding. I was a name actually is going to ask like that. that. Have they done similar studies in uh, in Asia or in, in Eastern Europe and looked at whether they're whether they're names that we feel are local and that we feel that we can ah. identify with? Or oh, see, I'm not sure there. No, the research here is more looking at that. It's not a fact that we're not being racist. With okay. This. So it doesn't matter that um, the name's long or it sounds foreign or it's unusual, but rather how easy it is to pronounce. So Smith and Chen, both easy to pronounce, therefore both, both equally attractive for job promotion. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So it's just whatever makes it easier, which I guess is the human's natural laziness maybe. Whatever's Possibly. easy will do. Yeah, Something to think about if you ever have kids, if you want to make sure they get promoted, give them a nice short, short, <laughs> short sharp, sharp name. simple name. Yeah, well now I think my brother's got it right. He's just Kale. Yeah, that's very simple. Okay. Unusual, but simple. simple. Exactly. If he gets promoted further than you, you can just say, oh, mum and dad, it's not due to me. It's all your fault for giving me a long, complicated name. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. And uh, look, from names, let's finish off on some really serious science, Alice. And uh, we're going to go downstairs 
towards a little bit down a little bit half downstairs. a floor downstairs half this floor. is this is this is a show that's on in the middle of the day we're not going too far downstairs true it Broderick. is 12 30 on a it sunday is 12 30. so we'll keep things pretty pg rated uh don't send the kids off this is actually a story that the kids might really like to listen to we've talked a lot today uh, about fossils that we've found and fossils quite close to canberra that show an amazing array of diversity so lots and lots of different species of of now extinct animals and plants all in one place and because of that diversity that's one of the reasons why this fossil site is considered special and you've probably heard about environmentalists pushing to protect biodiverse places like coral reefs and rainforests Uh, but i've got a question for you brod that is sort of half downstairs but not too much (laughs) sure how would you feel if i said that i think we need to go out of our way and invest money and effort and time into protecting protecting belly buttons protecting well, look, I mean, my belly button is pretty special. Oh, it's, thanks uh, for showing it off, Broderick. That's all right. Look, yeah. Um, <laughs> it is radio. No one else can see it. Um, look, yeah, I, I think some people's belly buttons are special. I've got a friend who can make hers be an innie or an outie. That is pretty, pretty special. Yeah. That is pretty special. Mine's pretty normal. Yours is pretty normal. Yeah. This is not so much about protecting belly buttons uh, as, as an actual part of your body, but protecting belly buttons because they're really biodiverse places. It turns out that belly buttons are actually home to a really wide array of critters. Now, you're pulling a bit of a face here, but bear with me because it's not quite as bad as it sounds. So the news is that a group of scientists in North Carolina have been studying the bacteria that live in people's belly buttons, and they found over 1,400 different strains of bacteria living in less than a than 100 different people's belly buttons. So they looked at 100 different belly buttons, took samples, found 1,400 different types of bacteria. And the scientists think that they'll discover thousands more bacteria as they look at more belly button samples. And really interestingly, that about half of these bacteria species that they're finding may be newly discovered species. So in in no way dissing the gentleman before with their new fish. It's fantastic that they're finding new fish. Uh, But we can also find uh, many, many more new animals inside people's belly buttons. Animals... Bacteria, sort of not quite the same. But uh, the scientists found that people have an average of 60 to 70 different strains of bacteria in their belly button, as well as other tiny critters like fungi and yeasts. Many of these bacteria are found across many people's belly buttons, so they're like a common type of species, but some are very rare. Each person seems to carry their own personal mix of bacteria. As one of the participants in the experiment explained, and this is him talking about his own belly button, out of the 53 species that I've got in my belly button, 35 were present in only 10 or fewer other volunteers in the survey. And 17 species in my navel didn't show up in anyone else. Several species I've got, such as Maramonas, have only been found in the ocean before. Um, I'm adding a tone of pride there. I imagine he sounded a little bit proud about his belly button. Uh, but before all of our audience feel the need to race off and have a long, hot, soapy shower... Keep in mind that most of these bacteria are harmless. As the scientists conducting the survey explained, we imagine germs as bad, but most are not. Most are either good or simply present. The diversity on our bodies is, like any biological diversity, fascinating and full of awe, and we want to share the joy of discovering it one body at a time. So in talking about fish discoveries and and ancient mammoth discoveries and name discoveries, I think that's a nice point to pretty much leave off on. Mm, Sounds amazing. From... Ancient Devonian millions of years ago to our belly buttons right here today. That's fuzzy logic for another week, listeners. If you did miss the start, don't forget to download our podcast. Just head to iTunes and type in fuzzy logic or go to fuzzy logic on 2xx.podbean.com. 
I will plug them once more. We had Gavin Young and Tim Senden, researchers from the Australian National University, with us today talking about Old Bones New Insights. That's an exhibition that's going on at the Canberra Museum and Gallery on London Circuit in the city. It's only open till the 26th of February, so I encourage you all to check it out. See these amazing fossils before they do disappear back into the ANU vault. And if our PM does happen to be listening today, maybe it's time we did have a natural history museum here in Canberra. That's enough from me today. Thanks for joining me today, Alice. Thanks for having me, Broderick. No worries. And thanks again to our guests, Gavin and Tim. I'm going to sign off from Fuzzy Logic for another week. Uh, Have a great week, everyone, and uh, keep trying out science.